Welcome, and thanks for joining us on the Disciples Church podcast. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and I'm excited to be able to open up the Word of God with you today as we look at Psalm 1 together. Recently, I had an opportunity to listen to a teaching from a pastor that I greatly admire, uh, and as he began his talk, he was specifically discussing the biblical approach that parents ought to take in training their children. And what I appreciated about his conversation was that rather than this being a series of tips and tricks or even particular principles that parents ought to emphasize, he instead discussed the importance of Christian identity in the development of Christian children. And he went on to talk about the idea that when we teach kids not to participate in certain behaviors because we don't want to be like those people out there, what we're really doing is instilling in them a sense of pride. That ultimately they're standing before God and their own Christian identity is rooted in their ability to perform. So instead, he talked about rooting behavior in identity. That because we're Christians, we are honest with one another. Because we're Christians, we forgive people. Because we're Christians, we don't spend all of our money on ourselves. And so he talked about this idea of what it is to root children in Christian identity. And the helpful reminder for me in that as I listened is that in training my children, I am not primarily trying to instill particular behaviors that lead to an identity, but rather I'm instilling an identity out of which a transformed lifestyle can flourish. And here's why I bring all of that up. Scholars estimate that Psalm 1 was written about 2,500 years ago, that it was likely written by David or by Ezra as a preface to the book. So it's amazing when you stop and consider it that an ancient text like this one can so accurately diagnose and critique our modern day culture. I mean, the truth is we live in an ever more relativistic age where at least theoretically the ideas and the mores and the values of one individual are assigned the same plausibility and the same value as another. But Psalm 1 posits what we naturally know to be true. In fact, what our children naturally know to be true, that there is a definitive right and a definitive wrong, that there is a moral certainty that's written in our hearts by a creator God. So it makes sense to us then that when the Psalms were compiled, this one was placed first. Psalm 1, along with Psalm 2, serve as a framework upon which the rest of the Psalms hang. So the church father Jerome, writing in the 4th century, described it this way. He said Psalm 1, as the preface to the Psalms, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He compared it to a door that grants access to the building that is the Psalter. See, the Psalms presume that we are under a constant barrage of influences that affect our thinking and shape our perspective. So the Psalms then give us insight, not only in what to think, but in how to approach life itself. And the language that we find in this text is similar to what we find in the Proverbs. There's a lot of talk about the results of our thoughts and our behavior, a lot of talk about things like wisdom and wickedness and righteousness. And that's because Psalm 1 is essentially a wisdom psalm. But the wisdom offered in Psalm 1 goes much deeper than just the way that we think. It addresses our basest motivations and desires. And so as we read this together, please notice the parallel tracks that the author describes. And notice how he contrasts the wicked, which is to say worldly thinking, the perspective of the culture in which we live, and the righteous perspective, or that is the perspective of God himself. And here's how the psalmist says it, beginning in Psalm 1.1. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, this psalm starts with an interesting and familiar phrase. It starts with the phrase, blessed is the man. And the word that's translated blessed might be translated in your Bible as happy or satisfied or joyful. And the very first time that I read another translation other than the one that I was familiar with and saw the word happy, if I'm honest with you, my response was cynical. It seemed to me that that word was a very trite interpretation of the word blessed. But actually, as I looked at the word blessed and what it means, it quite literally does mean happy. In other words, the intention of the psalm is to say that there is a happiness about the individual who walks in the ways of the Lord, the one who delights in the law of the Lord. But I wonder if we really believe that. I mean, after all, people typically associate happiness and satisfaction with their own ability to do and pursue whatever they want. I mean, if anything, it seems that happiness is what this world pursues. We see it in advertising for new products. We're promised it in our vacations. We search for it in relationships. Happiness seems to be the commodity of our culture. But for many others who've pursued happiness at all costs, whether that's through money or fame or comfort or entertainment or physical pleasure, they've come to the conclusion that true happiness is an illusion, that it's unattainable, or at the very least, that it's fleeting. And in fact, that's the view that many people have of religion. That religion at its root is an exchange of temporal happiness for something more lasting and noble. But all of those ideas give short shrift to the Christian understanding of who God is. Because the Psalms present the idea that there is a real and deep happiness and that that happiness is attainable. But the key of everything that we see in this Psalm is that happiness is not the aim of the Christian life. It's a byproduct of it. And that runs counter to our presumption. So look how he begins. He starts by describing where true happiness is found and notice the progression. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the psalmist is actually going to begin by painting a negative. A blessed man, a happy man, is one who does not participate in these things. Now, fairly or unfairly, much has been made of the poetic language that the psalmist uses here. Here is this man who is blessed because he does not partake in this downward progression into ungodliness. And the progress is described, according to one commentator, in this move from association, in other words, walking, to identification, standing to fixation or sitting. Now, to be clear, the instruction here is not to avoid interaction with non-Christians. And to interpret the text that way is to ignore the rest of Scripture. I mean, Jesus and the disciples were consistently in the company of people who, by any standard, were wicked. 
And you can read the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for more information on how believers ought to approach that idea. But instead, what the psalmist is warning us about is to be aware of the values of this world because those values have a tendency to seep into our thinking almost imperceptibly. And they lead to changes in the way that we think and believe and act. I remember as a kid going to the mall with my friends. And when you're in middle school and you have no money, you don't go to the mall to purchase things. You go just to hang out. And I remember after a while of walking through the stores and hanging out with your friends, you might get bored and you'd start to look for other things to do. And so we discovered what a lot of middle schoolers have discovered, which is that you can make a game of going the wrong way on an escalator. So we'd have races up the down escalator. Now, I'm not recommending that anyone do that, and hopefully my mom's not listening to me say this because she'd be shaking her head in disapproval 25 years after the fact, but, but that experience taught me something that is really obvious. Escalators do not allow you to stay in one place. If you want to go up a down escalator, you have to constantly be moving or you'll go backward. And in the very same way, we cannot live lives of spiritual neutrality. We are always moving in one direction or the other. So when the psalmist uses the phrase, stands in the way of sinners, he's saying that someone can find themselves in the position of being on the pathway, the manner of living of someone who lives in opposition to God. In other words, to not worship the God of the universe is not to find yourself in spiritual neutrality, but to find yourself as an enemy of God. And notice the progression, the downward progression of this man. He first walks with those who do not believe or know God. Then he stops and contemplates their manner of thinking and their worldview and their perspective. And finally, he sits among them. And in doing so, he becomes indistinguishable from them. Their thinking has become his thinking. Their values have become his values. Their priorities and their objections have also become his to the point where he finds himself being cynical and critical of those who do trust in God. See, the truth is that the more we sit under counsel that is contrary to what the Bible teaches, the more we become comfortable with it until, like boiling a frog, we are led to our own demise. So this is written as a warning. It's saying, don't walk this way. Don't think this way. Don't act this way. Instead, live out of the identity that God has given you. See, your identity always shapes your behavior. So back to verse 1. This man is blessed because he does not allow himself to be shaped and molded by world-focused thinking, but he also finds blessing and happiness in God. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So he delights in the law of the Lord. This happy man, this blessed man, finds deep joy and meaning in the things of God. And when the text uses this phrase, law of the Lord, it's not talking about specific instruction or specific commandments in the Old Testament, but rather it's referencing the whole of the inspired word of God. It's saying that in exploring the scripture, And discovering God in its pages, this man delights in what he learns, believes, and becomes as a result. But not only does he delight in the word of God, he also meditates on it. What does it mean to meditate? In a culture like ours that is so familiar with Eastern thought and religion, 
we immediately begin to think of Eastern meditation. We think about emptying the mind, finding nothingness. In religious terms, one might think of the idea of finding or attaining nirvana. But biblical meditation is not an emptying, it's a filling. It's contemplation on meaningful, eternal things. It's setting your mind on what's valuable. So let me explain it this way. When Jessica and I first started dating, she'd already accepted a job out of state. Uh, I was in the middle of going to my junior year of college, and we knew we were going to be apart for several months. So in addition to phone calls and emails and everything else that we uh, use for communication, we also started writing letters to one another. And I remember getting different letters from her and sitting down to read them. And I remember pouring over those pages, looking at each and every word that she had written. And I remember as soon as I was done reading that letter, I would reread it again. I wanted to hang on to her words. I wanted to hear what she had to say. I meditated on her words because they gave me a window into who she is and what she cared about and how she thought. See, when we meditate on the word of God, the Holy Spirit reveals and applies and shapes our hearts. And the more he shapes us, the more we desire him. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, what is it that you find yourself thinking about when you're all alone? When you have free time, what occupies your thoughts? What comes to mind when you're facing stress or frustration? With the change of seasons and the cool evenings, we've been having more fires at our house recently. And one of the things that I've noticed is when you have a really hotly burning fire at the end of the evening, when everything's kind of burned up and the logs are gone, what you're left with are these embers and ashes. And even though there's not a lit flame visible to the eye in that moment, if you take a log or you take a piece of kindling and you press it deep into that ash and deep into those embers, it will eventually burst into flame. See, that's kind of what it's like to read and meditate on the word. You're taking the living word of God. You're pressing it deep into your mind and your heart and your soul. And the Holy Spirit in his grace begins to ignite it. And we see the impact of this all throughout scripture. We even see it in the life of Jesus himself. If you remember the story, we studied it when we were talking about the book of Mark, but I'll read to you from the book of Matthew. When Jesus is in the wilderness, he faced several temptations. And in those temptations, he faced something that was more severe than any of us will experience in temptation throughout the course of our lives. It says this in Matthew chapter four, beginning in verse three. And the tempter came. And said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And in that exchange, we find such an insight 
into both the nature of Christ specifically and the nature of humanity more broadly. Whenever temptation comes our way, whenever we're challenged to view things through a lens other than that belonging to God himself, what we are doing in that moment is trying to live out of a different identity than the one that we've been given. I mean, notice the words that Jesus uses when he responds to the devil. The devil is saying to him, if you are the son of God, if you are actually the person that you say you are, if you think that you are actually God incarnate, do this thing to prove it. And Jesus refused to allow his identity to be defined by something that he would do instead of something that he already was. And in his response to the temptations of the devil, what you find him doing is responding with the scripture that he knew so well. Jesus was so inundated with scripture that in the times of deepest distress and hardest temptations, scripture poured out of him. See, practically, one of the biggest helps for me in my time with the Lord is reading the Bible in the morning or listening to the Bible as I'm going for a walk or driving in the car. And over the last several weeks, I've been spending a lot of time in the Psalms specifically, and I've noticed a change in how I begin thinking when I'm stressed. Because when I find myself in a moment of inner turmoil, I've begun to ask myself questions about what's causing it and reminding myself of what I've been reading and listening to. See, the reading of God's word is not just an intellectual routine, and it's not just a philosophical exercise. It is a powerful practice that begins to shape and change you fundamentally. And there is no alternative that can replace its significance in your spiritual development. But look then what all of this devotion to the word begins to create. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So the promise of God is that when we read and meditate on his word, it grounds us, it nourishes us, it feeds us. We begin to see the fruit of spirit-given life bloom in us. And we're promised in this text that the fruit that the spirit brings about will not wither or pass, that it is lasting and it is consistent. And finally, he says that this man and all he does prospers. Now that phrase has been hijacked by all kinds of people who say that God's intention for the Christian is that if you do the right thing, God is obliged to reward you with material wealth and possession. And the problem with that, of course, is that we don't see that example play out biblically. I mean, think about it this way. We worship a savior who was murdered and the disciples to a person were murdered and martyred and exiled. And such has been the case with millions of Christians in the time since. So what then is the prosperity that is promised? Well, it goes back to verse one, blessedness and happiness. We prosper in a lasting spiritual joy that is not dependent on circumstance. See, this person prospers because he values the things that God values. His priorities have changed and he's found meaning. And we especially see this in comparison to the ungodly that are mentioned in verse four. It says this, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, those that ignore God and seek to find happiness and meaning in their pursuits 
ironically, find neither happiness nor meaning. But when you seek God, he provides meaning and happiness that otherwise seemed unattainable. So the question then is this, how can we be confident that God will actually do this? How can we be confident that that we will have meaning and lasting happiness in this life and that we will stand in the day of judgment? We have confidence because the righteousness that we so desperately needed was purchased for us by Jesus. See, if the purpose of Psalm 1 was to provide a formula for attaining salvation, we would all be in trouble. If God's standard for happiness in this life and confidence in the day of judgment was in our ability to walk perfectly in the ways of righteousness, then we are sunk. But thankfully, we had a substitute. That the very same Jesus who stood in the face of temptation and was confident in the identity that he had before the Father is the very same Jesus that went to the cross for us. That he purchased our redemption. And that in that purchasing of redemption, you were given his righteousness so that when the father looks at you, he no longer sees your failures or your shortcomings, but instead sees Jesus' perfection. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave you a new and full life in him. He gave you the Holy Spirit who gives you new desires and new affections. And it's the Holy Spirit in us who enables us to live a life that is obedient to God where we are no longer drawn away by the priorities of this world. See, it's in him and him alone that our hearts undergo transformation so that we can find true and lasting happiness in God. That is our prayer for this week, that as we devote ourselves to the study of God's word, as we pour out its truth into our lives, as we spend time meditating and thinking and praying over the truths that were given and the implications that they have for our life, that our very affections and desires will begin to be changed and transformed. It's my prayer for you as you look at this text today. And it's my sincere hope that you will take time, both today and through the course of this week, to devote yourself to the word and to meditation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us realize that our happiness lies in you alone. We pray that you would protect our paths and give us discernment to see when our minds are being formed by the thinking of this world more than they are by you. God, grant that we would find our delight in your word, that we would develop a practice of devoting ourselves to reading and meditating on you so that our priorities can be realigned to yours. And God, help us not to settle for shortcuts in our walk with you. May your spirit awaken us afresh to know and pursue you. And in you alone, find happiness and blessing. And we pray all these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Thanks so much. Be blessed this week.